Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. Indie Game Business is recorded live on Mixer and produced by the Powell Group. Check us out at IndieGame.Business. Now, let's start the show with your hosts, Jay Powell and me, Indy. You've got to check out our Discord at discord.gg slash business. It's an amazing community of over 3,500 other industry experts. We've got developers, publishers, marketing and PR firms, investors, so, so many, so many. It's safe and supportive place to network and to talk to experts. You can learn more about the business of games or you can share what you know with others. We have exclusive workshops on perfecting your pitch deck finding a publisher and more remember it's discord.gg slash indie game business well well welcome everybody how's it going i'm your host indy and we got jay powell here from uh powell group consulting hello there we are What's up? How's everyone doing? Hope you guys are doing good. So we are here in the game business. Um, Powell Group Consulting. You can follow the Twitter at Powell ERP, which is short for group, obviously. <laughs> and also there's the LinkedIn, the LinkedIn link down below. So, hey, how's it going, trolls? So today we are going to talk about quite a few things here. The first thing we're going to talk about is events. PAX just happened, right? So let's talk a little bit about what to do after PAX. What so we're assuming you're, we're, we're, we're talking about the developers that have gone and, and tried to use PAX for, for business. Yeah, let's I'll, talk, let's talk, let's talk first. Cause I, the way, like what I was telling you early, I feel like there's two developers or there's a couple of different kind of developers, three, actually not two. The first type is a developer that's been there that showed their game off and they had a booth. Another type is a developer that just went and was there on the floor. Maybe they have a game or they're working a game. And then the other type of developer is somebody that just wants to be a developer or is is working towards being a developer. So which, which one do you want to talk about? You want to talk about somebody that went there for business networking, has a booth? At, at the end of the day, they're all mostly the same. I okay. mean, and that, that's one of the things that... that irks me and that, I, that I've seen for years is we have extremely passionate, extremely creative folks that go and, and they create these games, but they don't know how to do the business end of it. The, the, you know, the basic blocking and tackling that comes along with actually growing your company and, you know, being successful at these things. So, you know, in a sense, no matter which one of those you are, you know, in the spectrum, it, it, it all comes down to, you know, a lot of the same type of stuff. I mean, you, you have to do the, the basic blocking and tackling, as we say, you know, go and be professional and pitch your game and then, you know, follow up and, and do all that sort of stuff. The basics, basically. Right. Okay. So, so let's say someone's going to PAX and they are, they've been doing that. They're going to meetings. They, you know, what, what do you, what do you advise for someone to do when they go at PAX? Do they do so? Does someone do different things depending on where they are at in development? Or? There's two when you go to PAX, or it's like EGM Res is going on right now in London, and I mean, there's a show like every every two weeks, it seems like. But you know, it always is going to come down to the same type of stuff. You know, you're there to pitch. You're there to, you know, you want to have your business cards as much as everybody like, you know, especially the younger generation. They're like, oh, we don't need business cards. That's for old people. Trust me, you need business cards. And you need business cards that aren't black on the back so people can write notes. Um, but, you know, you want to go. You want to meet with the people that you're, you're scheduled to meet with. And that's one thing you got to keep in mind. It's like you can't just like show up at PAX and be like, I'm going to pitch my game to 15, 20 different publishers because those publishers have been booked up for, you know, three weeks, you know, you've got to start planning for this stuff way out, but say, you know, you're at the show and, you know, you've done your meetings and you, you've shown, you know, the game, to several different publishers. Now you come back, 
you you know take stock of those notes. I mean, always we recommend having some sort of CRM solution. You don't need Salesforce because Salesforce is ridiculously expensive for what we use. But even if it's something as simple as a Excel spreadsheet, you know, come in, put the name of the company, the person, you know, their email address, phone, Twitter, whatever in there, and you know, start keeping notes because you have to keep up with all this stuff. You know, you have to be able to say. Okay, I haven't talked to that guy in three weeks. I should check in and see what they're doing because publishers are busy. You know, they're looking at 80, 100 games a week. Right. You know, they, they're not going to be the ones that are, you know, constantly pushing back to you. You have to be proactive in it. So, you know, when I come home from a show, I spend the first two days, frankly, decompressing and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> getting all of my, my notes and business cards and all that sort of stuff, you know, organized and, and in the system and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, say I came home on the weekend, Wednesday or Thursdays when I start reaching out and following up with everybody. If you do it like the day you get back, everybody's overwhelmed. And they're just yeah. like everyone else is decompressing. Just, yeah, exactly. And trying to catch up on a week of emails that they missed when they were at the show. So, you know, give it like two or three days. And then go out and follow up and, and say, hey, look, I appreciate the meeting. You know, just as a reminder, here is, you know, what we talked about and here's the game and here's a demo or a test flight link. Don't take a bunch of, you know, printed out PowerPoint decks and things like that to trade shows because as someone who's been doing trade shows for 20 years, I can tell you where all of those end up. And it's in the hotel trash room, the trash can in the hotel room. When you do that follow-up is when you need to start sending out your your materials and things like that. And like you were saying for CM, the the important thing is and you can you can have all the information of everybody you can have their twitter you can you can have all that stuff documented but if you don't write notes you're just going to have a bunch of names you don't say i talked to this person about this this is what they're doing this is what i did this is when i talked to them you're just going to have a massive list of people and places and you're not going to you're going to be completely overwhelmed and it may take some time to write notes but it is so even if it's just i'm looking on my desk to see if i actually have a card a business card laying around on my desk but you know even if it's just as simple I've got as one right here here look at that so on the back yeah you know just you oh, just yeah. write a note on <laughs> and like this is who we talked to and this is what we did yeah uh-huh. see <laughs> but it's hard to write on that one <laughs> oh I, I know but that way people will remember me they will know that no, it's me and this is my streaming card this is not like my business one that's that's different i love that but i mean you have to you have to even i so I usually do five shows a year and you figure that over the course of 20 years and I still get home with a stack of business cards that's like that thick. And I'm like, who in the hell was this guy? Where did I meet him? Cause a lot of your networking when you're at these shows is not on the show floor. You know, it's, it's at the hotel lobbies and the bars, and the parties afterwards. And after, you know, couple of beers and you're tired and it's late at night and you meet somebody and you wake up the next morning and you're like, um, I have no idea who that guy was. That's when it's always useful to take those little notes. Right. Right. No, that's a good idea. Or, or best place is at the, when you're taking a lunch break at the event, you just sit there. So many people will come in and out of there. It's, it's pretty amazing. But, oh yeah. But yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so you've got all this stuff and you're following up. Oh, that's the next graphic here is follow up. Um, follow up. Follow up with those people, right? You've got them all organized. Like this dude's a publisher. You've got your publishers over here. You've got you know, other developers here. You've got – so you want to follow up. You want to build – people talk about networking, right? And networking is fine. Networking, the definition is something like you build to grow your business – but I feel like in this this industry, you you kind of also want to befriend people. Yes. On a certain level, I mean, you know, I, but I would imagine most people something that's even in a big corporation, you want to you want to have some kind of rapport with that person. You don't want to just like, hi, I'm so and so. Here's my business card, and give them an elevator pitch, and that's it, because that will immediately get forgotten. Don't you agree? Yeah, no, that's one of the things whenever I go and talk to students, you know, this is a big industry, you know, it's billions of dollars and then there's, you know, a lot of really big companies. But at the end of the day, you need to talk to everybody and treat everybody, you know, with respect because that bridge you burn will absolutely unequivocally come back and haunt you at the end of the day. I mean, the guys that, you know, when you first start out 
and maybe they're in QA and testing and, you know, wherever they are. Over the next five or 10 years, they're sticking in the industry. You know, they're going to be C-level, you know, at that point. And so, you know, networking is, it's good from a social point of view, but it's also good from, you know, that business point of view, because you do get that time where you can like, you know, just hang out and talk about completely random things that have nothing to do with the industry, but you remember that person and they're going to remember you. And even if there's not business to be done in, you know, the next three months, six months, a year, you know, maintaining that relationship is, is very important. Right. I, okay. So we actually have a list of upcoming shows here. Graphic up for everyone to look at. Bam. Casual Connect Europe in London. That's that's in May. Yep. Oh, it's that's coming up quick. E three is my birthday. Really? Yeah, E three is on my birthday. I I don't know if I'll be at E E three is a major. It's a E three is a nightmare. Yeah. I, <laughs> I haven't gone in like two years because it, it has it has changed so much. So the first E three that I went to was actually in Atlanta, Georgia. It wasn't even out on the west coast, and over the years, it turned into such a huge marketing show versus, uh -huh. you know, developers and publishers and getting deals done and that sort of stuff. Then it died and then it came back. And, you know, even the last E3 I was at, which wasn't last year, it was the year before, I spent all of my time in the JW Marriott lobby across the street from the show. I think I went into the show like twice because that's where the business stuff happens. When you go to GDC, the business stuff happens in the hotel lobbies. You know, you'll have folks that don't even have passes to get into the main show. Um, so it's, but E3 has always been one of those that I'm like, it's, it's, it's not a good place for Indies to go and try to get a deal done because it's all about the big guys and the, you know, multi-million dollar marketing projects and all that kind of stuff. But it is fun to go look at stuff there. <laughs> yes, that part is very true. And now that they open it, because it used to just be press, right? Yeah, they're in like this weird, they don't have an identity right now. You know, Gamescom is, to me, the quintessential major show of the year. Uh -huh. They have, I think it's like 14 halls. Each one of them is like the size of one of the halls at E3. And they have it completely separated into the business side and then the consumer side. And so you go on the consumer side and the business folks can get in there before the crowds do. And it's nothing but just wall to wall esports setups and, you know, all strictly geared to the consumers. They have one hall that is nothing but swag from all the publishers and developers. So you have that fun stuff going on, but then there's another six halls that are dedicated to just the business aspect of it, where you can actually have a, a conversation and, and, you know, hear the other person, which is always the problem when you're at, you know, GDC or something, not GDC, but E3. Right. It's like, it's so loud. You can't hear anybody, but you know, they've got it. They do it right when it comes to consumer and business. And so um, I keep waiting for E3 to get to that point, but they haven't yet. Well, I like, what casual connect does casual connect is i mean it shows stuff off but it's all business it's all about connecting yeah. with other developers with publishers with businesses um and we'll talk about this later but they also have competitions there okay let's see what else is there casual connect in serbia which i want to go to because i hear that's freaking beautiful there <laughs> um pocket gamer you were talking a little bit about that you were saying how important that was pocket gamer well, I mean, Pocket Gamers like Casual Connect. You mm -hmm. know, they're very focused shows. And, 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 you know, Game Connection is the same one. You've got the big ones. You've got your E3s and your GDCs and your Gamescom. But especially when you're an indie team, you know, going to Casual Connect, going to Pocket Gamer, going to MIGS, which is down there in, you know, in Canada. And this isn't even like everything. We're not even talking about the White Knights Conference. And, you know, there's a BitCurrency Conference going on, you know, in a couple of weeks. If you have the budget and you want to fly around the world all year, I mean, you could do a show like every two weeks if you wanted to. Yep. The the smaller shows that are more focused, you know, you're going to get more attention. There. You're going to have a, you know, better time meeting and talking and engaging people than you do at 
you know, your E3 and your, your Gamescom. The beauty of, now I was at Casual Cut Berlin last year and I was at the one in Seattle. I missed the one in Anaheim, you know, in January. But the beauty of it is it's compact. You don't have to worry about spending 30 minutes getting from one end of the hall or the other. You know, if you don't schedule properly at E3 and GDC, you got a 20-minute walk yeah. in between your meetings, yep. and which cuts into the time that you have to meet with people. And with Casual you Connect, know, you can be like, I'll be back in a minute, and then just run across the whole thing. Yes, exactly. And and that is so much more convenient because you don't have all the fluff there. You know, it's there, you know, for business. And those are those are really good. And then, you know, like we're going to talk about a little bit, you know, it's got the um, the indie competitions there as well. Yeah. Well, Casual Connect is specifically. Okay, let's see. And, and you were talking about MIGS. I, I've never even been to Canada. I haven't. Check it out. Oh, Canada loves me. They pull me out of immigration like every single time I go. I don't know why, but I always get stuck over in the, we need to talk to you line. <laughs> Funny. Okay, so competitions. Let's pull that up. Uh, IGC or GDC. Uh, IGC at GDC. The Independent Game Festival. That's in October. Oh, that's the submission date is October. Yeah. Yeah, they do it. I mean, they obviously just did it at GDC. But, you know, for indie teams, these are so important, you know, because not only – it's not even all about winning them. I mean, that, yes, that, that's a beautiful thing. But, you know, if you're selected to be a finalist, you're sitting there and you're going to get showcased on the floor. You know, we had streamers at, you know, the Casual Connect in Seattle that were, you know, streaming these games from the floor and interviewing the developers. All of these are an excellent way to get feedback from real people, from, you know, real executives and people that are veterans of the industry through the, just through the process of the, uh, my brain just like shot right there. But, um, selection. selection. Yeah. <laughs> and that's important you know, too, because, you know, a lot of the time you will be working on a game and you get feedback from people you know, and they'll be like, oh, that's awesome. You're not going to get real, actual, solid feedback. You it will get the feedback matter. that your friends are going to give you. It, it doesn't it, matter how good your mom says your game is. That yeah. doesn't count. That's, um, yeah, you, you can't use your friends as testers. And, you know, expect, the family side of it doesn't work either. Yeah, expect real, actual results. Okay, uh, what are we, Gamers Voice Award? Oh, that's at South by Southwest, which is amazing. They they actually, this year, or last year, it was huge in the gaming. The the gaming the year before that was just kind of a small thing. But this last year, I mean, Twitch was there. It was, it was, it, it pretty much blew up in gaming. They just slam it in there right next to GDC, though. Yeah. And so you're, you know, we can only go to so many different shows. And so, especially for smaller teams, it's hard to, you know, fit all of these things in. And it's tiring. God, yes. There was one year that we went to GDC, and we had to leave in the middle of GDC to fly out to PAX East. That was the year when there was a big storm in Boston, and there was, like, snow piled 20 feet high on the side of the road. Oh, my God. So, we went from GDC, walking around in shorts, to being freezing cold. (sighs) And man, I got sick. I was just like, then everybody gets sick. Everybody got sick. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Everybody gets sick. Not fun stuff. So yeah, those those competitions are super important. What do you think about uh, like the Ludum Dare or Ludum Dare, as people call it? That kind of stuff. You you lost me there. What? Hold on. Gotta remember, I'm on cold meds today. Oh. Did you lose my audio? No, huh? I'm just like, oh, like the game jams. Yeah, the game jams. Those are awesome. I mean, those are good as, as well because it gets you out of your comfort zone. You know, as a developer, you know, being able to sit down and say, okay, we've got 48 hours or a weekend or however, you know, however long it runs, you know, that one's actually fairly long. Mm-hmm. But those are great opportunities to you know, one, get yourself out of your your, your comfort zone of, of what you've been making and what you like. But two, you know, again, it's about feedback. And so much of our industry, when it comes down to making a successful game, comes down to, you know, iterative feedback. Are you, who are you talking to? What kind of feedback are you getting? You know, are you doing straight up focus testing? Are you in early access? You know, 
I wrote an article on LinkedIn, and I'm like, even look at the big games. Part of the reason that Fortnite has, you know, blown right past PUBG is they are iterating on that game. You right. know, they are making quick decisions and, you know, finding new things that players think are fun and, and things that aren't. And that's what all of these game jams teach you is the whole, you know, you've got a finite amount of time, you know, iterate on this, do something quick. It may not be pretty, but make it fun. And so, and that's just, I think those things are, are that fantastic. That is really a huge difference between Fortnite and PUBG. PUBG is like, here's the game and this is what it is. And then you just, that's the way the game is. Fortnite is like, oh, well, this week we're going to have 50 v 50. Oh, let's let's throw in these new weapons. Oh, why don't you guys try out this stuff? Oh, you know, oh, and they have so many different modes that they just cycle through every, every week, every month. There's, there's something different to do. It's not the exact same thing. And I think that that is helping them really move forward. And the benefit back to Epic and the developers on that is, they can use those modes to actually play test things and, and test new features and all that sort of stuff. When they did the sniper challenge, the first you know sniper challenge special mode where it was only like sniper weapons and revolvers, they were actually testing some of the issues with the scopes and the sniper weapons by doing that. And Without so, anybody knowing. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think that they played it really smart. Yes, it did take... You know, Nick, it did take five years of experimentation and it took, you know, but it wasn't, the interesting thing about Fortnite is it wasn't five years of iteration on this battle royal mode. It was like five years of iteration on the single player game. And it was, you know, they couldn't ever, you know, find something that was really, really engaging. And then, you know, they dropped the battle royal mode in there and it just exploded, you know, but yeah, that, that game has been in development for like five or six years at this point. But it was all on the, you know, that that single player save the world mode, which I don't find fun. I, I don't. Yeah, that's part I, of the problem. <laughs> I don't find that story mode fun. I mean, it's okay. But, but if know. I'm going to hop in and spend thirty minutes playing something, I'd much rather spend thirty minutes on the battle royal mode. I don't know why, but I am much better at Fortnite than I am at PUBG, and you know there's latency issues and, and cheater issues that you can factor in there, but you know, it's a more engaging and welcoming game than it is than, than PUBG was. Right. And I like the fact that you don't have to like, Oh, you have a n- different clip you can put in your gun. Oh, you can do, I I don't like any of that stuff. I like, Oh, this gun's better. Let's just drop this yeah. other one. <laughs> it's purple. It's I purple. want the purple one. <laughs> I want the golden one, the golden one. That's what I, I think want. it's interesting how, you know, Blizzard over the years has driven the color coding in all of these different games because right. the color coding that they use in Fortnite is exactly what you get in, in WoW and, and all the other you know, the Blizzard games. That's funny. Well, you know, it goes to show you how things carry on. and But, but it's not like it – it doesn't feel like, oh, this is from Blizzard. You know what I mean? No, it, it doesn't. It's just, you just, just kind of accept it. It's right. like, oh, I know purple's good. You know, yeah. that's – Green is much better than gray. (laughs) All right, so we've got some questions here. It's question time, Q&A time, bam. Self-publishing versus publishing through a publisher. What's your your view on it? So most of my views on these things comes down to it depends. Two years ago, I would have said, yes, if you as an indie team can do your own marketing and your own testing and your own, you know, PR basically, then yeah, you can self-publish because you don't need a publisher to get into Walmart and Best Buy and GameStop where we used to have to sell everything on retail. You just need to be able to get to the Apple store and Steam and you know what have you. That's not true anymore. I mean, we've seen so many games. I mean, there's like a hundred games released on you know Steam weekly and the same on iTunes and, and it's become more of a discoverability battle. I absolutely recommend, you know, especially for first time, you know, developers, you need to get a publisher. I mean, you need to find the right publisher. And there's like five, there's not, I mean, not like, I know for a fact, there's over 500 publishers out there, you know, finding one that is interested in your game, you know, isn't insurmountable. 
but you have to have that level of expertise that's in there. You know, developers that have been doing this for a long time, they don't need, you know, if, if they've already launched games and they know how it works and they know how to do the discoverability side and the marketing, it's less of an issue. The only, you know, if you're doing something free to play, you absolutely, without a doubt, have to have a publisher unless you're willing to drop, you know, $100,000, a million dollars a week into user acquisition for your game. You know, the indies doing free-to-play mobile games, it's tough. It's nightmarishly tough. Um, but, you know, when you're coming to, you know, single-player and, and, you know, console games and, and a lot of the other stuff, you didn't necessarily need to have a publisher because you could publish on Xbox and PlayStation. And, you know, you could get it out there on Steam. But now those markets are so crowded that it's it's tough. So, I mean, two years ago, I would say, yeah, let's do, you know, self-publishing. And we would help studios self-publish, you know, from, from my company. But now it's, it's, it's much different. It's much more competitive. But, you know, I've been, like I said, I've been doing this for 20 years. You know, it, and I see these cycles come and go. And I have publishers that I you know, speak to now that are like, yeah, we're going back to retail because, you know, the digital side has gotten too competitive and too overcrowded. And I'm, that, that was the one that kind of took me back a step. And I was like, wow. Did not expect anyone to say, let's go back to retail, but they're having success with it. Um, yeah, everything in this industry comes down to a cycle. But yeah, right now in the market, the way the market is, I would say find a publisher. And, and that's uh, it has kind of cycled around because there for a while it was, you know, cons, indie games. Then it on the Xbox 360, they had the indie whatever it was where you could buy games for it. But then indie games kind of went away from consoles and it's Steam, Steam, Steam. And then the Nintendo Switch came out. And now I hear a lot of developers say things like, I've been on Steam for six months. We just released our game on the Switch and we sold more games in three days than we did in six months on Steam. There was just an article I saw about Shovel Knight and how it has sold more on... Let's try to find that real quick. Shovel Knight was super popular. Yeah. Everybody and now, streaming it. Now they've it. sold more of it. You know, they've sold more on uh, on Switch than they have anything else. So it used to be back in the day, an indie game or indie company was a company that self-published, right? But then there yeah. came out indie publishers. So now, <sighs> what is the definition? Because I've heard some studios they will have a couple a hundred people working, and they're saying. We're still indie, you know. So, what what do you think the definition is? Or everybody's got their own, you know, opinion, and and you get the whole. It's it's like like bands. They're like, oh man, they're not indie. They's completely sold out. Uh-huh. But indie to me is more of a mindset than anything else. It's like yes, you know, you can have a hundred people working on it, but if you're doing something that is unique and not the status quo that's what to me defines indie more than what your budget is or you know what your how many people you have working on your studio and all that stuff if you're doing things that are that are actually out there innovative and not the norm you know that to me is what embraces that indie mindset more than the fact of you know we've got four guys working in a garage which you know, we do. I mean, that, that's still a lot of studios. Right. You look at Star, Stardew Valley was created by one guy over four years. That's ridiculously, I mean, impressive to do that. But it, it's got, that's one of the biggest arguments that I always see online. It's like, what classifies as indie and what doesn't? You know, and there are, there's a whole lot of indie, you know, publishers out there now. Some of them have experience in the traditional publishing world. Some of them are, you know, PR marketing firms. Right. That, you know, I've, I've transitioned into that. Mm-hmm. He said, Trigger says, that's like your opinion, man. <laughs> I know. And that's the thing. I, hey, that's exactly right. Because when it comes down to, you know, those definitions of indie, it's it's not something that's clear cut. It's not something, you know, that's not anymore. When, no. And when I say I want to sit down and play some indie games, it means I don't want to play Fortnite. I don't want to play, you know, I want to play something like Don't Starve or, you know, those types of games more than something that I know, you know, is like the traditional FPS sort of whatever. I, I kind of look at it as more like an indie game is something that's not AAA. 
It's not from a AAA studio. Okay, but you know? all right. So yes, but then you got to define AAA. I mean, you got games like Shovel Knight and Stardew Valley that have made more money than a lot of AAA games. So you know where does that fit in? That's why I always like the the whole the genre, uh-huh. the design aspect of it more than you know the sales and the AAA thing. No, you're not seeing EA and Activision and you know those guys doing indie games no matter what they claim they are but you know you've got indie games that for a lot of people would classify as triple a because they're they've so sold so many units yeah right. or, or they're so good or they look like triple a quality yeah exactly makes sense. makes sense okay so according to your to your view what kind of games are are highly welcomed what kind of games should beginner developers try to develop make what you want to make and, so, and this is question is like timely because we saw the death of Steam Spy this week. And, you know, I understand Steam changing the TOS and all that kind of good stuff, but it sucks because Steam Spy was such a good resource for the small to mid-tier studios uh-huh. to sit down and say, okay, these types of games are selling and these aren't. And, you know, I was a part of a, a group that, you know, we would – make estimates. I mean, it wasn't like fantasy football or anything. We weren't putting money down on it, but a lot of us in the industry, and it came from you know, people like me to brand new, you know, students coming out of schools, a wide variety of people in there, but we would sit down and look at what's coming out in steam and make projections on what we thought would do well. And the thing is, like, none of us were right all the time. And, but, you know, having Steam Spy that would give you, you know, some realizations on these types of games are selling well or these aren't, that was awesome. You know, I mean, that was great to have to, you know, justify the business end of it. But at the end of the day, you have to make what you want to make. I mean, how many people would have sat down and said, okay, you know what would be really good this year is like another Battle Royal game or let's do a, you know, a PC version of Harvest Moon. You know, there's uh-huh. when you get that passion involved in a project, that's what makes them good. You know, you can sit down and spend all the time you want making a game that you're like not really bought into yourself, but it's not going to be make, as good. So basically, a make a game that you would want to play. Yes. There you exactly. go. I also feel like if it's your first games or first couple of games, don't just like, I'm going to make, you know, Skyrim, yeah, or an MMO. If it's your first game, make something simple. You know, makes it doesn't have to be graphically amazing. It can be two D. It could be a simple platform type game or whatever. Something that you'd want to play, but don't make a game that you're not going to finish because your first uh, game. I I feel like it's more important to finish than for it to be totally awesome. Now I'm like looking up articles again. The You know, one of the things that's really big right now is these micro games mm-hmm. and, you know, very, very, very simple games that take like two minutes to play. But in from a business standpoint, they're exceptionally good right now. And there was an article I saw I mean, it was like last week about a guy who had made, you know, 50 some games. And then the latest one is the one that hit. And I can't find that article right now. Um but especially for, for brand new developers coming out, or even if you're not a, you know, if you've worked in a, a bigger studio for five years and you want to come in and, you know, do something fresh on your own, you know, these little micro games are excellent ways to, you know, get going and, and you know, get started on your own and do things that are, are fun, but it's not something you're going to sit down on and, you know, spend six, eight, 12 months on, you know, putting together you know to establish credibility as a developer either a developer studio or an individual developer this goes for designers as well it's all about what you've shipped and you know if you can come in and say here's this game we want to do and you know here's these other three games that we've released but you know they haven't had a huge amount of success I've seen so many games over the years that weren't successful, but were awesome. You know, there's so many factors that can go into what makes something, you know, truly successful from a business standpoint or, you know, sales or all that kind of good stuff. I want to work with the teams that have shipped product. 
you know, that know what that last 10% of the development cycle, you know, is really like when you're trying to get it out the door and, you know, polished up and all that kind of good stuff. So, you know, those are an excellent way to get in. But at the end of the day, find something you like, because if you don't like working on it, you ain't going to work on it long. Definitely. Definitely. I'm also a trained 3D animator, and I've worked on games that I wasn't really passionate about or the type of games and it, it was kind of a struggle to keep going on and be like oh i just i gotta get this done it's, it, but i've also worked on things that i thought were awesome i'm like yeah i can't wait to see this in the game you know and it it does kind of uh make a huge difference especially when you're working on it for hours now so let's see here another question how rapidly is the gaming industry changing today what's the future hold for developers I get that a lot. And it's one of those that, yes, it's changing, but it's, it's all a big cycle. You know, what, what's new now was the same thing that was new like five or six years ago. You know, what's changing is the biggest change, frankly, Andy, is people like you. Streamers have completely thrown the marketing world of this industry on its head. And, you know, you saw the pushback like two or three years ago at E3 when E3 was like, yeah, we're going to let the streamers in. And all the traditional journalists just completely went ape shit because they're like, well, they're not real journalists. It's like, no, but, you know, they're the ones that are selling games. So, you know, the the Twitch and, and YouTube and Mixer and, and all of these you know, different platforms, that is the biggest change in the last several years. The rest of it is just hardware. You know, it's it's... We're not going through a different, you know, a huge hardware cycle right now. We're not like looking at the PS5 or the Xbox 2. I don't know what they're going to call it because they've got that numerology so mixed up. But we're not dealing with that anymore. But we are still seeing a cyclical change in what is popular. You know, first person shooters, aside from like Call of Duty and, you know, the big tentpole games, weren't that big, you know, weren't that big two years ago. And now that's changed. Um, sim management games, which were huge in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, died out for a while. And now they're coming back and, you know, and things like that. So a lot of things change, but they stay the same. But the biggest change in the last two years has been the streaming community. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Big time. But then, like, sometimes, like Trigger was talking about, Scott Cawthon. He was doing Christian games and religious stuff, and he does a 180 and starts and he made Five Nights at Freddy's. Five Nights at Freddy's was such a simple mechanic, but it was something that's never been done before. Well, what Christian games have always been interesting to me because given the user base that you have access to, especially now with with mobile and self publishing, like a publisher. Five, ten years ago, wouldn't touch a Christian game for anything. They're not going to try to put it on the shelf at Walmart or Best Buy or, or any kind of religious-themed games. But now with the you know, ability to self-publish this, you know, even years ago, I was, I was a little surprised that they never took off in the way that I felt that they had the potential to. And, you know, yeah, I mean, Scott's a great example. He's like, all right, you know, well, let's try something completely different. And it explodes. Well, yeah, you would think that it... Christian things would expl- would explode considering the state that, you know, people are in right now, especially in the United States. But I actually worked on a Christian game. I, well, I was a beta tester in the 90s for Enlightening Studios. Uh, Catechumen was the name of the game. It I don't was, remember that game. Yeah, it was a first-person shooter. Uh-huh. And, but instead of killing people, you saved them. And I was a beta tester on that game, and I submitted so many bugs to it, and all of them they just excused. That's not a bug. That's da da da. That's I'm like it's not a feature. Yeah, I mean, it's not a bug. It's a feature. That's funny. But I and trigger is that is a dead on right comment. It's like you know, and people will sit down and they're like, "Well, traditional game reviews." I don't know the last time I looked at Metacritic when it came to a game, and that Metacritic and you know, PC Gamer and all of these review sites were such an integrated part of the business side of this. You know, you would have contracts that say, you know, if your game scores above an 85 or 90 on Metacritic, then you get a bonus, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars the publisher would throw at you. 
and they are still looking at it to an extent. But now it's why? Why do I want to go? It's like movies. It's like why do I want to go and listen to somebody's opinion that may or may not be what mine is when I can just like turn on Twitch or YouTube and, and like start watching people play. And that's a much better. That's what I do. I'm mean, like if yeah. I'm, I'm interested in a game, maybe I want to play it. I find it on Twitch. And I watch a little bit and see if I might like it. Big time. See? All you streamers are breaking everything now, aren't you? There's a few games like Gary's Mod that you played because Cassie Mexican played it and it looked kick-ass. <laughs> and that's what it is. I mean, that's what you look at all of the the way that the marketing trends are going in the industry now. It's like all about influencer marketing and how do you get influencers engaged in your games and you know all of that sort of stuff. And it's it's done a it's been a huge upheaval on the marketing side of the industry. So what are the main challenges that the gaming industry gives entrance today? Discoverability, getting noticed. That's the biggest thing. That's the biggest one. Just because there's so many games released on steam right now. So many games out there. There's um, some like the game I was just playing phantom halls. That game is amazing. That is one of my favorite games. Were you watching me play that earlier? Yeah. That's a, I love that game. It has some really cool features and gameplay that is not in any other game. And yet, you know, when I looked on Twitch, nobody's playing it. No one's streaming it. It's an amazing game. Just, it's like, I feel like so many things are just either you have to have a bunch of money poured into it, or if it's an indie game with a low budget, it just has to luckily be found somewhere. And that's it. And that's the discoverability aspect of it. It's like you can't <laughs> 10 years ago, you could go to a, a GameStop and they had that section of the wall that was like the top 10 best selling games. Uh-huh. And you would notice like number two didn't even have a game on it. It was just like an empty box because the publisher had bought that spot. Those weren't really the 10 best selling games in the store. Those were the p- places that people, you know, had bought their spots to get in there. Really? And now, Yes. Wow. And we yes. were so dumb, we would just fall for it. Yes. They called it a, it was a term we used in the contracts, and I can't remember what it was. But, I mean, it was, you know, I think it was MDF. But, you know, it had some technical you know, name. But what it really was was the amount of money that the publisher or the distributor had to pay to the retailer to get prime viewing, you know, uh-huh. spots on the shelf. It's like... When you go into Best Buy, you know, back in the day when there was a PC game section, the games that were right there at face, you know, level, those publishers had paid more money to put them there, or, you know, they were selling well enough that Best Buy moved them up there, you know, for a week or so. And so that's how a lot of the product placement and the, you know, discoverability was done by then. It was like, who can make the flashiest box and get it in the right spot? But now, you know, it, it's you've got all these games coming out at once. Even being featured on Apple isn't the boost in sales that it used to be. You know, it's, you get a spike, but that's what it's always been too. You know, you get a spike and the minute it's not featured, you get a, you know, a plummet. But now that spike in sales isn't, isn't even, you know, as much. So, I mean, getting out there and getting noticed is without a doubt the, the biggest hurdle that these you know, companies have to hit. And that's why we said Go to the competitions, go to these shows, you know, anything that you can do to get your game out in front of people. Cause you never know when, you know, that smaller streamer who's playing your game gets noticed by a bigger streamer and you just kind of like blew up the streaming food chain in terms of you know, how many views you're getting. So, um, you know, the technical standpoint isn't really as much of a hurdle anymore. There's so many, um, you know, engines out there that, that lets you really go in and, and, do what you want to do and, and build functional games. It's it's the discoverability of the marketing aspect of it. And even I think even Steam noticed that because oh. it used to be if you had a game, you would get it on Steam, you would have three exposure rounds or discoverability rounds where they would put it on the front page. You would get yeah. three of them. And now they upped it to five or six, I believe, just recently. Mm-hmm. But still, that happens. You know, it's it doesn't it's it's not gaining the success well, like, and, like it used to. 
Back in the day, I remember with video games and like music too. You know, I I grew up listening to heavy metal, so you would go and you would you couldn't listen to the music, so you would like pull up the 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 record or the CD, and you'd be like, "Oh, this has the most badass cover. Let's get this one." And that was that was it. Whatever had the most awesome cover, that's what you got. So here we go. Here's a good question: Why is it important? For a developer to come to a consulting firm like Howl Group Consulting. For the same reason you go to a publisher. There's things that we're really good at. You know, we track 3,500 developers and another 500 some publishers. So, you know, we just sit down with that game and go, all right, here are the 75 to 200 publishers that, you know, are going to make the most sense for you. You know, I can't code. I can't draw. I've done a little bit of design work over the years, but not, you know, anything major but you know everything is very specialized now and you know that's what you know i saw when i started this company seven years ago it's like there's a niche for somebody and i've been the business out of this industry my entire career and you know you've got to have somebody who's super focused you know and when you know so many of the indie teams have maybe their lead program or their lead designer also doing the business end of it that's taking time away from doing you know, the things that are important to make a great game and right. doing the business end of a game, you know, that's not a part-time job. That's a full-time job. And so, you know, whether you're going out there and trying to get your game notice that you've made, or you're just going out there and trying to find new contract work to do, it's not something that you can like turn on and turn off. I mean, you have to be doing it all the time. So, you know, we see a lot of specialty companies pop up in the industry everything from art and music which have been around for a long time but you know i've got a friend of mine who runs a consulting firm that focuses on free-to-play game design and monetization I mean, it's a very specific part of the industry but that's where their focus is and so you know our focus is on you know the business development and the licensing side of the industry okay so it's is it kind of the same thing that a publisher does or different or what what kind of can you talk a little bit about exact things that you guys that you do? So we do. So the publishers are going to be the ones that go out and you know they've got the relationships with Steam and, and Apple, and you know they're the ones that are going to go and coordinate the actual launch and manage all of that stuff. And we used to do a bit of that, you know, when we would help these studios um, self-publish. You know, we would sit down and say, okay, look, you need testing. What's your budget? what time frame do we have? We go out and we talk to a bunch of different testing studios and, and manage that process. You know, the publishers are the ones that are going to actually bring everything to market these days. You know, we focus on, you know, getting developers in front of the right publishers and helping them negotiate the contracts and, you know, helping them qualify those publishers to make sure that they are good for their game. Um, but I mean, over the years we've worked with developers uh, we've worked with publishers who have come to us and said, you know, we have these IPs that we you know, want to get games made out of, but we're not very happy with some of the proposals that have been coming in, you know, left and right. So we sat down and completely revised their RFP process and went out to about, we didn't go out to 1,400 studios. We started internally with a list of about 1,400 studios and then boiled that down till we had three or four that we thought would be a really good fit. Uh, we've worked with conferences to you know, help bring in more developers, more publishers. Um, we've worked with IPs to, to help them find the right developers to work on their brand, that sort of stuff. And our big you know, connection here is all of the network and the experience on that end of it. We've got our CRMs are tagged down to the fact that if somebody comes to me and says, Jay, I need a developer that can do a fantasy-based multiplayer free-to-play game on Android. I can plug that into our system and it'll spin out a list of about 200 developers who have done, you know, those types of things. So, you know, that's our specialty. It's, it's building these partnerships, whether it's a developer and a publisher or if it's a conference and sponsors, but, you know, leveraging our experience and, you know, our connections to, you know, help build good partnerships in the industry. So, so a lot, a lot, a lot of legwork. Yes. Yes. So, so that actually yes. led up to the next question, which you kind of already answered and said, oh, I'm going to ask it anyways. We're a game developer studio with a team of 10 people. Our focus right now is to work on medium sized projects. 
six months to a year, and acquiring them is our priority. We're searching for partners who can bring these projects to our team. Do you think that your company have contacts in this area that need this type of work? So, yes. That, that's one of the fundamental things that we've done for years is sitting down and saying, okay, you know, let's help studios bring in these RFPs. And, that, and I've worked on the developer side of that. I've worked on the publisher side of it. I've been in the middle of it. That, and when we talk about it's a full-time job to do that, you know, we will have, a couple of years ago, we had a period of about four months where we didn't get a single RFP in. And then we got nine in one week. You know, it's it's a matter of, you know, when we talk about doing that basic blocking and tackling of this dev, you know, it's checking in with these publishers, you know, every three months minimum because things change quickly. And so that's part of what we're going out and doing, even if it's not on a, you know, behest of a client, if it's just, you know, internally and maintaining these relationships, you know, we're constantly going out and, and talking to these developers. I mean, the publishers are saying, you know, what are you seeing? What are you looking for? Um, we do a big uh, survey every year, and so we're in the process of cleaning up all that data right now. And we're going to re- release it, you know, in terms of here's how many publishers are doing PC games versus doing console games versus doing AR and VR games. And you know, we've established the reputation of we know a lot of folks, and so when you are that, you know, that mid-sized ten-person team it's a lot of work to go out and constantly check in with these publishers to see if they've got anything coming down the pipe that you can work on, but you have to be doing it. You can't like, Hey, we got a project and we've been working on this for the next eight months. And then, you know, six months in you go, Oh, we got to have another project in two months. Doesn't, doesn't work like that. You know, it, it's, you never really know. And it, it's tough. I mean, quite frankly, it's, you constantly have to be looking for work, but then you have to manage the, you know, the people hours on your end too, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, what if you get this great opportunity that comes up midway through a project, you know, are you going to bring a bunch of people on? Are you going to shift people off of what, you know, they're doing onto something else? You know, it's, it's not easy. I mean, it's, and I wish I could give you like this big silver bullet of, you know, this is how you do it. This is how you fix it. This is, this is what we do, but it's, I'm sure it's always something different. It's always something different. And you got to, you got to, expect the unexpected right there's always a wrench that gets thrown in it left and right but you you know if if you're that size team and you know you're trying to do you know keep the contract work coming in mm-hmm. it's an ongoing process it's a never-ending process you have to constantly be out there you know the, the big face palm moments that i have is you know when i set up so one of the things that we do is we help studios prep for shows and that comes down to making sure their demo's ready, making sure they've got the right, you know, materials ready and coaching them through how these meetings are going to go and what they need to focus on, and what they don't. And, you know, then we'll go out for some of them and actually set up meetings with the publishers. And then we'll turn around and like a year later, we're going to go to the same show. And I'm like, yeah, yes, you had a meeting with them last year. How's that going? Well, I don't know. I haven't talked to them, you know, since that show. And I'm just like, follow even up, if follow up, follow up. Yes. Even if there's nothing to be done, you still check in. You still, you know, because you've got to remain front of, you know, front of mind with all these publishers too, or they're going to go to, you know, whoever, you know, did their last project or whatever. So it, it is, it, it's a year round constant, you know, thing that you have to be working on when it comes to the business side of it. This kind of stuff actually also translates to being, you know, if you want to work full time in live streaming, you have to do the same kind of stuff. Follow up. Meet people at shows and follow up, follow up, follow up. Keep those contacts fresh. You know, make those relationships. Okay, here's a really interesting question. Finding IPs, toys, movies, comics, etc., that can that could translate well into mobile games is something we have started looking into. How can you help us with this? Finding the right IP. All right, and so there's 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 the basics that we start with when we start looking at IP. One is the does this brand or intellectual property fit with the core demographics of the platform? Then does it fit with the core demographics of, um, you know, the genre, the type of game you want to make? And we had a, um, a brand come to us about three, about three months ago, and he's like, we want to do a kid's game, and I can't say who the brand was, but it was most definitely not a kid's brand. 
what he wanted in their head was like a mass market casual type game. But I, you know, and I told him point blank, I was like, I can't see a kid or a family playing a game based on this IP. It just doesn't. It, it, it's not going to make sense. So if you're a developer, so one, I'm a huge fan of getting an IP, you know, because it helps you so much with that discoverability side. You still have to make a good game at the end of the day, but you know, if you've got a brand behind it, it's going to make your life a lot easier. Especially for things in the future too. Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's when you can go in, in and say, you know, Coca-Cola trusted me with their IP to do a game, you know, it makes you look all that much better. But first you need to sit down and say, you know, really look at the game you're making, the game you want to make. You know, who is that ideal customer going to be? And then cross, hold on, cold meds, cross-reference that. <laughs> that's, that's the word I was looking for. Uh-huh. With, you know, who the, um, you know, who are the fans of this IP? So a classic example is at my last company, you know, we started doing hidden object games at the end of the hidden object craze. And, you know, we knew going into that mature of a market that there was no way, no matter how good the game was, you know, Big Fish is launching like five games a day on their site. We weren't going to get noticed. So I was like, all right, we got to get an IP. And so I, you know, literally called my mom and I'm like, you're the demographic for this game. What do you read? And she gave me a list of like, you know, 10 different, um, you know, authors. And I went, I went out and talked to one of them. It worked out. We ended up doing a, you know, casual hidden object game based on a New York Times bestselling author. And it did well. Wow. You know, and, but that's what you have to focus on, you know. So, all right. And that's step one. Then, you know, you want to make a short list based on who those people are, you know, what those IPs are. And then you want to start, you know, chewing through that to find out, you know, who is actually going to support you along the way. You know, we had um, a company out in L.A. that owns several like 80s, movies, 80s movies franchises call us. And they're like, can you go find a developer? Well, like, yeah, absolutely. Right now. I know. Like, what are you looking for? And they're like, we want a couple hundred thousand dollars up front. But OK, you know, there aren't a lot of studios that are requiring that, especially for a movie from the 80s these days. And I said, so what kind of support are, are you going to be able to give these developers after launch? And he's like, oh, no, we don't do anything. We think the, the, the name of the movie you know, does enough. I was like, <laughs> thank you for calling. And because it, that's not, you know, if you're up against, you're looking at some IP that they want, you know, six figures up front, and then they're not going to do anything to support you, that's not a good fit. You know, you've got to like have they some. Just, they needed some money. Yeah. Like. Well, I mean. They were used to that's how I mean that's how these deals used to be done ten years ago. I mean the reason T, one of the reasons THQ is out of business was because they chunked so much money into a lot of these IP based games that they had, and they were doing that. They were you know shelling out half a million dollars for you know a movie game or, or you know what have you. But that's not the market anymore. You need to have an IP partner that has you know we call it social footprint. You know, they need to have a bunch of Facebook fans and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube followers so they can market your game to their fans. And if they're not willing to do that, you think long and hard about whether or not you want to work with that IP or not. Wow. That's, I actually never even thought about that, but that makes total sense. All right. I think we got time for one more question. How can I expand the sales of my PC game through other stores besides Steam? You got to find them all first. There's probably a dozen or two dozen stores, you know, that are out there aside from Steam. And that's one of the things that we preach and, you know, the long tail side of, you know, sales is, yes, Steam controls 80, 85, 90% of the market. But, you know, there are other companies out there that are doing it. And you're not going to see the same number of sales. But, you know, it is absolutely imperative that you, when you're launching that game, that you do two things. One, you get it launched on as many of these platforms as possible, because a lot of those things do add up over time. But the other thing is you need to make sure you're localizing it into all these other different languages as well. You know, English, French, Spanish, you know, the big ones these days are Russian and Chinese. The Chinese PC market has just exploded in the last like couple of years. 
And so, you know, when you've got your game ready and you're ready to submit to Steam, you need to be hitting, you know, GOG, Amazon, and I've got a list of them somewhere I can put up, you know, that we can send to folks. But there is a substantial list of games, I mean, stores out there that aren't Steam. But when you do that, you also need to always be focusing on the localization side of it and how, and and frankly, that's something you got to plan from the very beginning, but that's a a topic for another day. But, you know, if you really want to increase the sales of that PC game, you get it on as many stores as possible in as many languages as possible. And on the Switch. And on the Switch. (laughs) Well, I mean, the Switch, so the difference between the PlayStation and Xbox right now, Xbox is letting anybody wants to publish something, publish it, and that's terrifying. But, you know, Nintendo is actually curating their stores. I mean, they're, you can't, we've got a client who has been making Nintendo games since the GBA days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we called up and he's like, I have not been able to get a Switch dev kit. And so, you know, we called our guy over at Nintendo and he's like, all right, well, let's look at the game you want to make. And that's what, you know, you take a step back and you go, okay, wait, they know they're killing it right now and they can't let their eShop get so overcrowded. I mean, it's already getting overcrowded. But they can't let it get out of hand like Steam and all these other shows, or all these other stores. So they've got to, you know, curate it a bit. And so you're not going to get a Switch kit unless you can convince the folks over at Nintendo that you've got a successful and or an interesting game that you're going to get on there. It's not it's not just simply let's order a dev kit and let's roll. Here's a question. This is my question. What do you think would happen if Steam backpedaled and decided to start curating games like They can't. They're too far down that rabbit hole. They're too far down. You don't think they could go like, okay, we're only going to release, you know, two games a day from now on. Well, that's what they, that was one of the reasons they did that whole, you know, $100, which was a joke. You know, they were like, okay, we're going to get the, you know, a lot of the crap out of the store that's launching every day. And they're like, if you have a hundred dollars, now you have to pay a hundred dollars. And it was just like, I roll, you know, it's, if they put it somewhere along 500 or a thousand, yes, it is seriously going to cramp, you know, a lot of the indie gamers out there. But, you know, if you've got a project that you're passionate about, you know, getting 500 or a thousand dollars to get on a store that's going to yield you, you know, multiple times that isn't insurmountable. It's not pleasant. I'm not going to say it's for everybody and it's not going to like cause us to lose some really good games along the way. But Steam is way too far down that rabbit hole to step back and go, yeah, okay, now we're going to start curating things. Well, that makes sense. Oh, Pyre said something. Some of us streamers want to be highly successful but can't afford to go to these shows. You don't have to go to those shows to be successful at all. You really is- don't. You don't have I don't, to. I don't, go to many, I don't even go to as many shows as I used to. Um, I think I was five or six last year, and this year I was like, okay, that's just like way too much. You know, if you, you know, from a streamer point of view, and, and this is something that's like so interesting right now because we've got streamers that are like, we really want to get you know into these developers and, and and get noticed and get some of these good games that we can stream. But at the same time, you've got developers that are sitting there just slamming their face on the desk, going, we can't get any streamers to notice us engage these developers on you know on twitter on you know their own site or wherever it may be you don't necessarily have to be at that show to be able to you know get their attention you just need to be passionate be professional and you know do what you love and go in and you'll get that you'll start getting that access to the content that you need right and there's a lot of lot a lot of indie developers that Regardless of the size of your stream, they are more than happy to hand out keys. Some of them are not, you know. Some of them, the bigger ones that are already kind of successful, you know, it's harder to get a key. But there's so many, there's so many games out there that it's easy. And really, events are are good. I mean, they're awesome. They are great for networking in person and meeting people and getting them IRL and seeing someone face to face. But you can still do that kind of stuff online. It's, it's not, you can't. You, I mean, you really going to an event's not just going to make you successful because also just like there's a bajillion people streaming on Twitch, there's also uh, thousands of streamers at those events all trying to do right. the same thing as well. So I just I just cheated went over to Pyre's page. You've got 750 followers. I mean, no, you're not PewDiePie, but that's not you know, the people that tend to get ignored by the developers or the people that have like you know eight followers. 
You know, the fact that you've even got 750 followers, that's good. So, you know, look at the games that you like to play. Reach out to them and say, here's my site. Here's my Twitch page. These are the type of games that I, I like playing. I want to play your game and, and take it from there. I mean, don't bug them like every day, but start reaching out and engaging. I mean, you've got a decent fan base, man. I mean, you can, you can do that, but you've got to do that whole, the basic blocking and tackling and, and business end of it. They're not just going to, they're not just going to come to you. Yeah, dude, you know, it's just get on Twitter. You see a game that you like, find them on Twitter, reach out to them on Twitter. That's it's super, super easy. Send them a, Go to a web page, message. email. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's just, if you reach out to someone on Twitter, they, they just might respond. The, the streamers and, and the situations that developers want to avoid are the key sellers. You know, if you can get out there and I mean, when you show that you're not somebody that's just going to go, hey, man, give me like five keys so I can stream your game. That's the ones that show up red flags. You know, if, if you're going and you're saying, you know, this is my channel. This is what I enjoy streaming. This is what I focus on. And look, I already have followers, you know hit it up on Twitter or just go to their website and email them and say, Hey, look, I'm interested in doing this. And I like your game. You can do it. You can do it. Yeah. It's all legwork, man. It's the legwork and perseverance. All right. Well, that's our very first episode. Indie game business. with Jay Powell, that guy right over there. Right over there. Uh, powellgroupconsulting.com. Um, Twitter.com slash Powell GRP. And also on LinkedIn right there, the Powell Group Consulting with Dashes. That's wordy. Michael Merchant, what's up, buddy? First episode done. <laughs> All right. So um, thank you, guys. I'm Indy. I'm from twitch.tv slash Indy. And uh, really, that's it. You got anything you want to say, Jenna? We'll be back next week. Thank you. Yeah, this thank is you, guys. This something I want to do for a long time. I'm happy. Yes, thank you guys so much. Send us your questions for next week. Yes, that's it. Send we'll questions that to this right here. When, tweet them out. Hashtag Indie Game Business. There we go. Indie Game Business. Thank you. Thank you, man. All right, you guys. Have a good one. Here's a little music Thanks, for you. Here's a little indie music for you. <laughs>